Hello, this is Jesse Liberty, and this is yet another podcast. I've had the opportunity in podcasting, talk to and meet some really interesting people, but I am super proud that Mad Sorgerson is back. He is the lead designer on C Sharp. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, I want to talk about all things that are coming, things that are here. I, like a lot of C Sharp programmers, write fluently up to C Sharp 7 or 8, and then sort of fall off a cliff with all the new and exciting stuff. So maybe we can back up and talk about some of that. But I think the right place to start is with what's coming. Do you agree with that? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what I that's what I spend most of my days thinking about. So uh, so it's right there. <laughs> great. Great. So what are the what are the headline things that we can look forward to and when and when? So nowadays, C Sharp, there's a new C Sharp every year um, until further notice. Uh, it comes out with the yearly .NET release in November. Um, so by the time .NET Conf comes around, that's when we release uh, the next .NET. This one will be called .NET 8. C Sharp is is plus four. So that's C Sharp 12. You can, you can kind of like we're trying to keep a constant delta there at least so you can um, so you can calculate which version I still get it um, we uh, this time around uh, the the sort of main features in C sharp are what I would probably call productivity features that they make they just make code nicer and simpler um, we do have a few things that are more performance oriented and so on but really the the, the two headliners I would say are gonna really make a simplifying impact code the <clears throat> the big one is what we call collection expression. Uh, so it's a new syntax in C sharp that's you know very very simple to read. You have um, open square bracket, then you have some elements, and then you have closed square bracket, and and that is a shared syntax for creating a new collection of any collection type. So when you are assigning to uh, an array variable or passing and a, a list of t, even one of the common interfaces, enumerable of t, something like that, you just put that syntax, and it's uniform. Even immutable collections will respect it, um, and and you don't have to. To, a, you don't have have to worry about oh, which which is the most uh, uh, efficient or syntactically pleasing way to initialize or create a new one of this particular collect. It's the same syntax for all of them, and we will go out of our way to make that efficient. Right? It will be in a sense like pattern matching, where we don't tell you exactly how we're going to do it. Like we keep some we keep some wiggle room for the compiler, and then depending on what we know about the collection, depending on what um, what methods it offers and so on, we will we will do the right thing. And if we figure out that we aren't doing the most efficient thing, then we can change it in the next release because we didn't say how we were going to. So the so the idea is you get the cleanest syntax, the most uniform syntax for creating collections, and you get something that's at least as efficient as what you would have written manually. So okay, so can we can we do an example? <laughs> I think so. Can we do an example of of a real simple example? Like I've got a collection of animals, and what yeah. what would I do with this thing? So uh, in the simple example, let's say that you need to pass your collection of animals to a method um, to the, the feed function. <laughs> um, <laughs> feed all these animals. Um, right. You you call feed. You say open square bracket. You put my tiger, my lion, my dog. Um, close square bracket, and then that will create. Which Whichever collection it is that the method takes. So it doesn't matter if it's an array, if it's ban of T, if it's immutable array of T, if it's list of T, if it's one of the one of the common collection interfaces. Um, whatever it is, we will do something good and create create a collection that satisfies that type. Um, 
and send it off to you. And I, I can pass in a list of tea or a list of dogs or a list of whatever, and you'll yeah, do so, the right thing? Yeah. So if you so if you want to, what we call spread in another collection into this collection, mm-hmm. essentially you have already have a collection of dogs and you have a collection of tigers. There's a syntax for that as well. So it's hard to do syntax over audio, but mm-hmm. instead of just saying my tiger, you would say dot, dot, my tigers. Mm-hmm. And that would spread in all the element of, of your tiger collect. And again, it'll look at what exactly is that collection that you're passing in. It won't just enumerate them and add them one by one. Like if it can do something more efficient, it will discover that and do it. If it call copy to or add range or, you know, anything like that, it will opt for the more efficient solution. So you don't have to know all these details or, or try to evaluate them against each other. You can you can trust the compiler to, to do it for you. And, and in like the vast majority of cases, the 99 point something number of cases we will have done, you have done anyway or or better because it's more coding effort, but you don't have to say it. So you wouldn't have written it yourself, but we do, we, we do, we go the extra mile for you. Terrific. That, that <clears throat> my brain is spinning with all the possibilities. Um, and so let me ask you something ignorant. Does does this work and play well with Lambda expressions uh, and, and uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, queries. I, I can't think of the word. Uh, oh something. yeah. Uh, link. Uh, Thank you. Queries. Yeah. Um, it, it does. Uh, now, link queries themselves do not have this kind of laser focus on efficient, right? So mm-hmm. if you if you create a link query, you, um, you're you creating some anonymous instance of an ionomable of T, and it gets evaluated lazily uh, as you kind of pull things out of it. And you can totally spread in a link query inside of a, a collection expression, but it, it generally, or the result of a link query, right? But it generally won't have an option to speed it up. <laughs> okay. It will probably, it, it will probably, it can do a little bit, right? It, it might not pull all the, it, instead of pulling the elements one by one, it might call two array in the hopes that that gives the query itself an opportunity to speed things up internally. Um, but chances are it's going to, you know, link queries, consuming the elements is not something that, that we have, that we are optimized. So that's, that's good to keep. It's a it's a, another collection-oriented feature, but um, it doesn't kind of go back and, and try to do something more efficient queries. But, but the, the collections that you give me in, in these square I can sort, I can filter, I can do all the normal collection things. Yes, yeah. As long as long as it's an ionomable and it has a way of getting elements out, which you know, mm-hmm. ionomables do, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you can put it there, and we will we will grab them one by one if necessary, enumerate over that thing, and put them into the new collection. That's fantastic. Uh, and for link query, yeah, there's a lot of things that will be less efficient, but it'll work. You know, um, it'll because we will try some efficient things. We'll say, you know, do you have a do you have a count that you can give me without going through all the elements, counting them. Uh, if so, we can pre-allocate enough space in the new collection. We don't have to like dynamically expand mm-hmm. it, but we can't do that with the result of a link query because it won't give us like an accurate count there. Um, so, so it won't be as optimizable, but it'll work and work just as well as what you have to. A. Why would I not use it? Um, they're very, very. We're really trying to the answer to that question to always be I would use it. <laughs> okay. Uh, the I think you would have some. Let's say that you have collections that are not what we call well-behaved. Mm-hmm. Um, they, we 
we do expect collections to to be well behaved. That's how we get the wiggle room for the compiler to do the best thing. We we expect, you know, that if it has a count, then the number it returns will actually correspond to the number of elements in there. We expect that if it has both add and add range, then add range will have the same effect as adding the elements one by one, right? That kind of thing. We assume that it's well behaved. Kind of just like link assumes that you have a where method and a select method that does certain things. And 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 so you can if you if you have collections that don't follow that the 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 pattern that our core libraries kind of uh, exemplify then it might not be able to do yeah if you're not playing nice then it might not be able to right um so that's one kind of example another one is that these don't have like these don't currently have like a natural type of their own there has to be a target type to be assigning to something that has a type so we know which type to create okay and so if you're like so you can't just say var my animal equals and then an, and then a collection that might come in the future we we, you know how since we have since we ship every year, we we mm -hmm. sometimes do this. We're like we're not sure what that should do. Let's just you know let's just not uh, decide on something yet because we might make the wrong decision. Let's release a feature without it, and then we both have more time to think about it. But we also now will start getting scenarios in the wild and people telling us what what they're missing and and mm -hmm. giving us the kind of information that we use to to take the next step better. One of the truly amazing and great things that happened to me this year is that I switched from mobile programming, which I had been doing for about seven years, to writing APIs. And there's an old expression, when all you have is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. So so therefore, I'm going to ask you a couple API-oriented questions for this. For example, I get a request through the API, and I go out to my database, and I do a bunch of stuff, and now I want to send back the result. Is this going to simplify my work in, in, in in assembling that and sending it back? And will it simplify the client? It, it It's all about creating collects, right? So mm -hmm. if if in the process of assembling the thing to send back, you are creating collections, like even arrays, mm -hmm. uh, and you're pulling the, the contents from various places and kind of sticking them together, then it can very well uh, help with that. As, okay. long as, you, as, long as, as long as you can kind of in one expression say all the bits that you want, all the individual elements and, and all the other collections that you want to uh, pull from and spread in, um, then it'll give you a very neat text that. And, it, you know, it's it's the kind of, we talk about this kind of feature as declarative, right? It, it's where mm -hmm. you say what you want, not how you want it. And so it has this very high readability. You look at it and it's immediately clear what you're getting. So I think, it's, great. Yeah, I think you could definitely uh, get some mileage out of that. One of the things that I like about this is, um, unlike some of the powerful features that have come along in the last few years, this one feels pretty immediately intuitive of, of when to use it and how to use it. Is that is that fair? Yeah. I think, I mean, we sometimes add features that kind of take you into a new realm, right? And mm -hmm. and whether to go there or not can be a, a bigger decision and take more learning. Um, if you're on a team, you kind of have to agree to go to go into this new area because everyone need to needs to level up on it. And then there are features that are just like that are drop in useful. <laughs> and this is uh, and we need some of both. Sometimes we really do need to advance like the expressive power of the language in various ways. Um, and uh, and sometimes it's really just about oh here's I didn't even realize how much of a nuisance this was until I got the alternative and I realized mm -hmm. wow I don't actually have to I don't have to you know remember that when I create a new array it, you know I should say if it if it's empty I should say array.empty instead of creating an empty new array to save on allocations I don't have mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff I don't have to remember and my code gets beautiful right? that's that's a kind of feature um, and, and we definitely want to always always have some of those absolutely now you had said that 
there were two key features. So yeah, that was yeah, one? That was one. Um, okay. And the other one uh, is uh, what we call primary constructs. Um, and it's actually a feature that has been there for a while, but only for records. Like we added records, I don't know, three releases ago or something. And um, the we always intended for primary constructors to be an orthogonal feature to that, that will work whether your class or struct is a record or not. But now is when we kind of got to fully fleshing that out. Um, so what a primary constructor is, it's in a way, it's it's kind of syntactic sugar. Um, it uh, but it's not it's not that thin. Like there's a fair amount of there's a fairly thick layer of sugar going on here. So the idea is that on your class declaration, you can put constructor parameters directly on the class name as like a parameter. So you say class C open paren and then constructor parameter close class animal or class zoo maybe, and then you're taking a collection of animals to your constructor that you can pass as a collection. Um, and then that that's sort of a shorthand for having an absolutely um, trivial constructor with those with those parameters. Uh, but the nice thing about it is you don't have to write that constructor explicitly. And also, all the parameters are in scope in the class. So you don't have to separately write your local storage uh, for them or write the code that you know assigns things over. And so various, your various choices of what you can do with those parameters in scope. Uh, but you, um, but whichever kind of approach you take, whether you whether you expose them through auto properties and assign them into them as an initializer or whether you uh, use them directly in member bodies um, that's all up to you you how you how and whether you expose them unlike in records that where they always exposed it how or whether you expose them to the outside is your choice but either way you kind of get a syntactic um, convenience from just having them there instead of having to have that constructor body do trivial thing and maybe you know several extra member declarations that uh, the constructor body has to trivially assign its grammar so if I do that and I don't make any constructors do I get, still get a default constructor uh no you don't um unless it's a struct a structs always have a default struct um but for classes no this this counts as a constructor declaration um and if you do have other constructors they do have to call this one like they they can't call base themselves they have to call this uh directly and indirectly coming back to the the uh, primary construct because otherwise we can't be sure that those parameters ever come in and we're using them in the body of the code so they better somebody better call the primary constructor or they won't. okay um, so let's let's just walk through i know audio is a hard way to do this, but can we yes. walk through a quick example of, of, of a class and its primary constructor and then a second constructor that has to call that? Uh, yeah. Um, let's say that you, yeah, let's do that. So if you, let's say you have a primary constructor, you, you have a class, let's use your zoo for your animals. Okay. Uh, yep. So public class zoo, um, and then the prime, then open paren, and then there will be, a, let's say, uh, a list of animals, mm -hmm. list of animal, animals, parameter. Um, and then you can, if you have a base class, actually you say colon base, whatever, um, right. uh, and you can even, and then you can actually pass arguments directly on the base class. So you could say my base class open paren and then some arguments to the base constructor if you want. Um, and then you open curly and then you, you, you write your members. So you might, you might not want to, um, so you said like have another constructor. So let's say you, so the trivial example is I want a, a constructor that starts my zoo without animals. Like I want to be able mm -hmm. to create a zoo th that doesn't have any animals yet. So you, so then you write your parameterless constructor, and it just calls this of open square bracket close square bracket uh, mm -hmm. the collection expression for an empty collection and. 
uh, now you have a constructor overload that calls the primary constructor with an empty collect. And so, so um, uh, that's how you do that. And then inside of inside of the body of your of your class, you can now have members that directly access the the animals um, parameter if they want. Or if you uh, or if you don't like that, uh, so 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 for instance, you you can like um, if you want to like search the animals, you want to do a query a link query to see if there's a tiger in there and return the tiger. You know you can have a method that does that directly on that animal's parameter it's in scope even after the object that, that is it. so cool we'll keep it around for you if you if you need it like we'll we'll see if it's used in any bodies and then we'll keep it around you know we'll we'll, we'll create a private field for it under the hood but you won't see the field you'll just see it as a parameter so, um, so let me let me just re recap and see if i put it in my head at all today if i want to have a uh, uh, cat we're going to stay with this for a minute um i might create my zoo class and then in the constructor, I would have a private member variable of type animal cat. And then in my constructor, I would pass in an animal and I then assign my member variable to the parameter that I just passed in. Yes. All that goes away. All that can go away if you want. Um, now, if you prefer to keep your state around as actual fields that you declare, you can do that too. And then you just, so if you want to say, um, you know, animal my cat mm -hmm. equals, then then the cat parameter is still in scope and you can in the for the initialize and then you can initialize your own field and not reference the parameter in, in your member body we'll actually warn you if you accidentally do both so you don't like all of a sudden have two different variables containing the cat but but i no longer need that private member variable right i have access to the one that was passed yes. in yeah you don't need you don't need, it's only if you want to do special some people like for instance if you some people like to ensure that they keep things read only mm -hmm. um like the local state read only there's not a way today it's a it's a, it's a point of debate we didn't do it in the first version. Again, we can come back to it later. But there's not a way to for a primary constructor parameter to be read-only, right? Parameters can't be read-only. So, um, so if they, so if you want to have it read-only, then what you would do is you would declare your private field. You declare it read-only, and then you just assign into it in its initializer. Instead of doing it in a constructor body, you can now do that in the initializer for the field, right? So it's still kind of neat. You're saying uh, read-only animal uh, my cat equals the cat parameter semicolon done. And and then you just have to kind of now that you've stored it explicitly in your own way, you just have to be careful not to cause the compiler to keep the other one around because it'd be kind of that'd be wasteful. Right now you'd have your field and the secret field of the compilers. And, and we, how do you get rid of that? How you, do just, I... you just so the way you avoid the compiler stashing your parameters in the in mm -hmm. the object is to not use them after the object is struck. Now you only use it in initialized struct. But uh, we help you remember to not do that. It's hard to it's hard to tell people not to do something <laughs> unless you check. So there's a warning that'll say, hey, you actually um you stashed this parameter in a field and you were also using it, it directly. Um, maybe get rid of one of them. Uh, so so we try to help you not make mistakes. Will Visual Studio flag that as a squiggly or is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It will. It's a it's a language level warning. So, um, right. so if you do one as error, it'll, the squiggly will even turn red. Mm -hmm. Okay. Those are two major, major features that, that are going to make programming easier, cleaner. Uh, what else is coming in 12? Uh, is the rest of it um, internal? No, there's 
several things, but they're, I mean, they're kind of, they, they become smaller and smaller. They, they, they become more and more like fixes, if you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, one that's going to be somewhat useful is that uh, it's, it's really a fix, but I like to show it anyway, because it, it's just an example of, okay, this has been a nuisance for a long time. Uh, let's, let's just get rid of the nuisance of it. it if you have a using alias, um, like you, you're aliasing a type, there there have been artificial restrictions on what type you can put there, right? You can't, you can only put a, a named type essentially. So you can't say using using height uh, equals int because int is a keyword and you can't put a keyword. You have to say int32, but of course you can't just say int32 because uh, even if you have a, a using system, then it doesn't apply in a using alias. <laughs> so now you have to say system.int32. And that's just so annoying, right? So we, we just said, yeah, you can put any type syntax there. So you can now put uh, uh, keywords for types. You can put tuple syntax. You can put pointer syntax if you want. As long as you make sure you're in an unsafe context, you can actually say using unsafe <laughs> to, to do that. So now you can alias anything pretty. That's just a, a an odd restriction. It's always been in C Sharp. It was, it was in the spec even. And um, we're just like, why do we have this restriction? There's no reason for it. And we did like one hour of design work on it, uh, maybe a little more to make sure that we understand what happens with the pointers and everything. And then, um, you know, it, that's just a thing you won't stub your toe on anyway. Right. It's great. Great. So you, so you said there were a few other fixes or small features? Yeah, I think we're coming, we're sort of coming down into the noise where um, unless you are like, unless you're directly, unless you're in a very specific situation, they probably, you probably won't notice them. Um, there were there were some features that we had hoped to do in this that just didn't make it um, that are perhaps more, more interesting that for some of them, uh, we still have like a, we have sort of like um, a prototype of it, if you will, like a preview version of it. Um, preview version that's available? That's available. Um, okay. We have, we have a thing that is very, that is, it's a very interesting direction and it's probably going to be super hard to get it right. But we wanted to get something out there, which we call interceptors. So interceptors is an, an experimental feature at this point. We don't know if it's going to end up looking anything like what it, what it does in experiment, but we wanted mm-hmm. to get, get it out there and get more data on it and get experience. Um, so the idea here is to help source generators have more ability to insert themselves into, into your code. So that sounds a little, if that sounds a little dangerous, you know, yet you, you have to trust your source generator. This. But mm-hmm. um, if you think about one, of, and one of the scenarios for this is uh, our push to do better ahead of time compilation. Um, so compile all the way to, to machine code. When you, if you look at a lot of ASP.NET, for example, it has a lot of, the, uh, some of the members in ASP.NET rely heavily on reflection and kind of runtime, yeah, runtime reflect to, mm-hmm. for their functionality. And that's really not very uh, ahead of time compilation friendly, right? They sort of rely on there being a JIT and we're trying to get rid of the JIT, um, uh, the just-in-time compiler at, at runtime. Right. And so um, we're trying to see if we could take that logic where they decide what to do based on circumstances that are reflection-based, and we can we can pull that out into the client code with a source generator so that when you call your ASP.NET method, there's a, an accompanying you know, ASP.NET AOT source generator that says, hey, you know, Jesse's calling this method, but I can actually pre-optimize based on the on the local circumstances here for the case that he's in. Um, so so the so instead of calling the method itself, we will source generate a new version of the method that's specific to your call site. And then that's where interceptors come in is that then we need some sort of feature to poke in and change your call site to call the source generator. Um, so it's almost like a metaprogramming feature. Well. And and it is um, it's one of those things where we have to balance um, kind of creepiness. <laughs> yeah. 
it, w with utility um and uh it's just uh it's a space that we haven't gone this far in before so it's a thing that needs a lot of just a lot of um bake time i think and a lot of input so in my, in so my root in my routine coding am i going to run into this am i going to use this is this going to become part of my tool set it's going to happen to you but the idea is you won't have to notice essentially okay. you call a method in asp.net and your experience will be that the thing that you expected to have happened when you called the method happened right so your code doesn't change its meaning but what actually happened was that somebody said he's calling that method uh oh uh we are an aot here um let's a source generator runs as part of your build and it will insert these things and essentially co-opt your met your method call to do something that's semantically what you wanted it to do but that is you know inline and specialized highly optimized for your specific contact uh, which is essentially we try to do the source generator try to do at compile time what ASP.NET what the ASP.NET method would have done at runtime with reflect. Okay, so here's here's one of my questions. Before I programmed at all, it it seemed like magic. It, programming just seemed like oh my god, it must be geniuses. And then you learn to program, and it's like no, you know, it's just another thing. And and building compilers now seems like magic. It it seems like you must have the the best and the brightest in in the world to do this. Thing. Does it become work, or is it in fact as hard as it sounds? Um, it it is hard to build pipe. There's no question about. It. I think it's an area where we've learned a lot over the years. We, um, to be clear, I don't build the compilers. <laughs> you know, I I help I, I help design the language, and I I understand at a high level how the compiler works, but I don't get in there. I so so as a and I and I it, I would have a hard time kind of navigating. It, it would take a, it would be a steep learning curve. So so it's still it's still hard. And the compiler code base for C sharp uh, the, the essentially what we call Rosslands, the compiler infrastructure for C sharp and visual um it's a very very complex beat um in some ways it it's a super well architect complex uh beat, but it in in many ways it's more complex than a traditional compiler because it it's set out to do much more than they do um in particular it's set out to be a unified compiler infrastructure that is both what translates your code into you know executables but also what drives the interactive experience you have in an ide for instance so, um, so therefore, it has to um, it has to do as well when when the code is being tinkered with all the time, and you have all these little local changes in rapid succession. That kind of incremental mode it has to do as well with that as it does in sort of batch mode, where it's just you know pulling things through the pipe build. And and furthermore, it um, so that's one thing. That's kind of that's this tension between interactive versus batch, and it and it does a whole bunch of interesting uh, algorithmic and data structure things to optimize for both to speak. And it was super fun to uh, to get to be part of designing. Um, but on top of that, it exposes its representation of code as a public API. It's a public immutable API that can represent a given piece of C sharp code or VB. Code. Um, and and we offer that up to anyone in to insert themselves in the tool chain and build analyzers. You see all these analyzers lighting up that are giving you warnings based on what's in the code, but warnings not coming from the compiler. The compiler is not the one doing it. It's just offering up its 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 uh, object model of the code to these like sometimes third party analyzers that can look at that and say, hey, um, this analyzer is looking for uh, you know unnecessary allocations, or this this analyzer is specific to Jesse's zoo application, and it's looking for things that you 
shouldn't do in zoo-related code and and offering you like squiggles for it and also offering you code fixes for it. And the code fixes themselves are also expressed in terms of the compiler's public data model for code, right? So it's an, so it's an, an, a highly reliable, highly efficient public data model for code that's also immutable. And that's like, if you think about it, like if you think about it too much, your brain should explode, right? And, and it's kind of like it's, it's, I consider it like one of those magical things I have seen is th- that that thing actually came into being. Um, and it was it, it was a hard pull over many years for many people to do it. But now it is this, it is giving that all back tenfold because it is this engine of, is this a language engine that is versatile and and has really enabled the next level in, in smart tooling around code. So I love it. I love it. But to get all that to kind of play well, it is super, super big and complicated. You raised a few questions for me, but before I go to them, does chat, uh, what's the uh, co-pilot chat, does that factor into what you're talking about or does that factor into the language at all? I, co-pilot chat is just truly magical, just amazing. And at least five times a day, I say, how did it do that? How did it know before I knew what I wanted? How did it know? So does that fit in with what you're saying or does that fit in with the language? Or It, um, it could. I think at the current, um, I have to be careful not to like be too much uh, to something I'm not like deeply involved in. But one of the goals for Copilot also is to be good across many different programming. And most of them don't have an infrastructure like Rust. And so it relies more on using the the large language models as it as its way to quote unquote understand code uh, as opposed to the Roslyn. Um, I think that there are many tooling opportunities to um, to interact between the two, um, kind of blend and get the best of both worlds. But at the heart of it, um, the 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 large language language model based copilot like tooling I think looks at code as text and takes it from. I, I have to say I'm I'm incredibly proud. Apparently there's a lawsuit or some sort of aggravation around that they built the one of the large language mod, models by uh, slurping up from books mm-hmm. and there's a, a website you can go to and put in the name of author and and see what they took and they took two of my books so I'm really proud that you know my my text is somewhere hiding in the large and and god help anybody who actually uses it um <laughs> but i digress um you you said a couple times as you were going visual basic what's the relative usage of c sharp versus visual basic at this point? um i it's i don't have precise numbers for it and we're also reluctant to give numbers out like that um the the sort of uh the rough kind of order of magnitude uh numbers we've been we've been saying out loud for the past like not quite a decade um are that there are millions of people using C sharp, and there are hundreds of thousands of people using. So it's sort of in the vicinity of one order of magnitude. You know? But there are um, still hundreds of thousands of people using VB, which is really kind of interesting. Absolutely, yeah. No VB, and and it's not like a it's not like a rapidly declining thing either. Like there's a there's a very there, there's a pretty I don't know I don't know the number exactly. I can't tell you it's going up or down or. But it's not like oh VB is VB is dying out. It's it's it, it's got a good amount of entrenched entrenched usage that I expect to continue many. So so. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, we, 
for the last, again, probably, I don't know, seven years, we've taken a public stance that is like expressed in what we call a language strategy. You can, that we recently revamped it and find it up on, on the, on the C Sharp docs site, Microsoft docs. Um, we have a, we have a specific stance to not evolve Visual Basic syntactic. We said Visual Basic and C Sharp, we used to say there's a co-evolution philosophy here. Um, the languages evolve together. They get the same new features. Um, and we found that that was really not a winning strategy for anyone. Um, and so we've chosen to differentiate here and say C Sharp leans into language evolution. Okay, lots of new syntax every release. Um, Visual Basic promises, which is something a lot of people were asking for, in particular in the Visual Basic community, promises to not do so, to not add new syntax, but to stay a uh, first-class citizen in the ecosystem, which means, what that means is that if we add new features to C Sharp that enable you to, to construct types in a new way, things that show that can show up in libraries, essentially. Like if the um, you know language features that our core libraries take dependency on and expose, then we, we uh, try our best to give Visual Basic a, a consumption-only uh, view of that. We won't just like crash and burn if it sees core libraries. We will do something reasonable with it. Um, we just won't let you declare those same things yourself with new syntax, but we'll consume it grace. Um, so that's kind of the, the balance try to strike. Okay, I'm going to shift uh, and, and ask you, what is it like on a day-to-day basis in the group of people who are doing this design? Are you sitting around a table? Are you sitting around a whiteboard? Are you on Zoom? Are, you know, what what kind of interaction? How many people? What, what does that feel like doing that? That's a great question because that's, that's you know, the thing I'm responsible for pretty much is is that process, right? That's, that's um, that, you know, he had one job. <laughs> so, um, and it's, it's changed in particular um, uh, since COVID. Uh, like all work has been kind of challenged in its processes. Uh, so have we. But even before COVID, even before COVID, so the, 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 the short answer is there's a group of people that meet um, by default twice a week, um, two two-hour meetings. So it's a pretty um, high-impact uh, thing on people's calendar part. Um, it used to be that we met in a room and used a whiteboard. Um, that kind of interaction meant that we were sort of maxing out at eight standing members. Um, and then some people started being remote <clears throat> and we made the meetings quote-unquote remote. But before COVID, I have to say, we weren't very good at creating an equal experience for people who are in the room versus people who are remote. And and COVID kind of shook us up on that. And we're like, okay, we've got to figure that. And, um, and now uh, we still have a room. We have a hybrid meeting. Um, and typically maybe a third of participants show up in person and the rest are, are online. We, um, um, we don't record... <clears throat> And publish the meetings. We we have a note taker who takes notes, and those are published on GitHub on the C Sharp Lang GitHub with everything. Um, we um, we find that, and and then we have you know processes so that people can participate equally. So if you wanna, and it's on Teams, right? So if you wanna say something, you raise your hand. You don't just talk over others. You don't chat internally between the people in the room. Like they're they're sort of like uh, behavioral rules that apply so that everyone gets shot. In on top of that, we have our kind of actually we are. We design the design meeting as well. We typically every year we have the meeting of the meeting where we uh, we let only the members in. We uh, discuss what's working well and what's not working so well, and we kind of modify our, our, our processes so that uh, we keep optimized process. Other than that, um, people who work at Microsoft come to any meeting they like. Um, we decided the meeting shouldn't be open to public. Um, they uh, and the notes are the right way to kind of uh, share things broadly. But if you work for us, you can just drop in. We we pub- 
publish the agenda to a mailing list. Uh, and so if people see, oh, this this intersects with what I'm working on, they can show up and and uh, share their experience and thoughts. And so it has kind of like a very flexible collaboration where, you know, nobody gets checked at the door as long as they work. Right. So so if you're not deep in the compiler, when you think about a feature you would like, what's that interaction that you say, well, it would be great if we could pass parameters into the constructor. And is there somebody in the room who says, yeah, that would be hard or that would be easy or that'll take us 15 years or how does that work? Yeah, they, you know, you know, first of all, I do know something about what compilers, uh, how compilers work, but I'm often wrong, actually. They, so the C-sharp design team, the standing uh, group, if you will, has several uh, members of the compiler team. Like I'm the only one who's like a full-time C-sharp design, if you will. <laughs> um, and we have uh, Kathleen Dollard, who's a full-time now PM or for C-sharp and, and uh, the other done. Uh, but other than that, the participants have like day job that uh, they take time away from to come and, and help design C-sharp, but that also their day jobs help inform uh, the, the discussion, right? So they have their own uh, technologies that need to interact with C-sharp, including the several compiler uh, team members that are there. Um, they have their own customers uh, whose needs they understand. And so they, we, we, um, we try to have, um, we try to have a high amount of diversity in the group of different perspectives and backgrounds and viewpoint and, and day jobs, so to speak, that we don't get too much of an echo chamber. And, and so absolutely one of the, one of the key things is, uh, is this reasonable to build? You know, is this implementable? And and compiler people in there will say sometimes, you know, this, this would be a we would have to re-architect that whole part of the compiler in order to encompass whatnot. We might still do it, but that factors into the to the trade-off about the cost of it. But then, it, um, even if they're like, oh, we can totally do that, the IDE people might say because there are also there's also IDE people in there. They they might say, you know what, I don't know what the tooling would be like for this. This is can we think about the toolability of this feature? And um, and again, you know. You know, I or you know the the ASP.NET people or or core libraries people will say, um, I if we are to expose this and if you to use this and expose it, it would need to have this different experience because otherwise it's not general enough or uh, it's not efficient enough. And the runtime people will say usually say it's not efficient enough <laughs> and so on. And so the, we get all these kind of different uh, things in people who are close to the to the end users, people who are close to the metal, and and mediating between all of that is this kind of creative space. Uh, that um, that the features are molded. I'm insanely jealous. Uh, it just sounds fascinating. It sounds like an exciting uh, uh, place to be. So go ahead. It very, it very much is, and I love it, and I wouldn't have any other job on the planet over this. Sometimes it's also like pulling teeth, right? Because having to mediate all these different voices and get to something good, it takes a lot of time. Um, our our kind of culture and and uh, rules of play really help with making it a a, a a friendly, productive interaction. Like we have very few arguments. Um, we just have disagreements, which are great. Disagreements are great. They help expose, um, you know, underlying tensions in the problem we're trying to solve and all that. Um, but it's also, I mean, some people are like flabbergasted at the amount of time we spent on little details and like, can't we just do it? And we're like, you can do that with some technologies. Like if you're building a UI you and you want to try out a different layout of your buttons or whatever, you can do that. And if people say, hey, this sucks, 
you just change it, right? We can't change the language. Once we, the language is this, I mean, even as we're pretty aggressive about evolving it and adding new things, we can never take things out. We um, we can never change our minds about how the things that are in there work because we will break thousands of people. So, and we don't want to waste it. The surface area is precious enough. We don't want to waste it on anything that's sort of like a fad or that's very specific purpose and so on. So we're very, very constrained. And we have to have very high confidence that the stuff we put out is worthwhile and that it and that it's right. <laughs> so, so spending this time as a group uh, going through all this, sometimes agony, sometimes lots of fun, um, is the best way we've found at getting the highest rate of success when the features finally come out. Can't be like, you know, this, uh, the point of no return. Well, that seems like a perfect place to stop because I feel like I have a sense of what's coming in 12 and I have a sense of what's going on inside that produced what's coming in 12 and, and when 13 will be here. So, so what haven't I asked you that I should have? Oh, <laughs> that's a hard question. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't, I'm... So we're there. I'm coming up blank here. Okay, uh, we'll, we, call it, we'll call it. We we'll might be there, or or just uh, you know, you you pushed me hard enough that my brain is empty. <laughs> I see. Well, as usual, it was a blast talking with you. Um, I feel like I learned a lot. It'll take me a little while to process it all, but uh, now I'm looking forward to twelve. So eleven is going to feel you know old. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear. It. And you know, it was a, a tremendous joy as always to get to chat with you again. Well, on that note, I'm going to stop recording so that people don't have to listen to us. Uh, uh, talk about things that are not C-sharp. But thank you so much for doing this. It was, it was really great. Awesome.